This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Technological advances, industry disruption, and shifting economic imperatives are rapidly changing the workforce. On Tuesday, December 18th, the Washington Post took an in-depth look at trends and innovations that are creating the next generation of jobs and reshaping how, when, and where we work. In this segment, the CEO and co-founder of Handy, a marketplace for home services, and the vice president of global public policy for Postmates, an on-demand delivery and pickup platform, discuss what the gig economy means for the future of work. Let's listen. Well, thank you so much for all being here today. Um, I'm Kat Zakreski. I'm the anchor of the Post Technology 202 newsletter, and we've got a great panel today on the future of work and the gig economy's role in that future. And so um, to kick things off, we have Vikram Ayer here with us, um, Ayer, excuse me, here no with worries. us from Postmates. Um, and he's the head of public policy for the organization. And we're also joined by Oshin Hanarahan, and he is the CEO of Handy. Um, and so maybe just to kick things off, um, as we talk about the gig, gig economy and, and this future of on-demand work, could you just tell us a little bit about your your companies and, and their role in that? Maybe um, could we start with Handy and a little bit about the services that you offer? Sure. You drew difficult names this morning. I, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> so we started Handy six years ago with the view that the way people buy and sell services was broken. So you think about how difficult it is to get someone to, you know, clean your home or to mount a TV on a wall or to fix a plumbing problem. And you go through so much of a clunky experience when you're trying to figure out who should you trust, how can you figure out how to get somebody there on time, will they charge you too much, will they charge you fairly, will they only accept cash or will they accept credit card? And what you don't realize a lot of the time is there's someone on the other side of that going through exactly the same experience in reverse, where they're figuring out, hey, should I advertise on a particular platform? Should I buy leads? If I show up and do a job, will I get paid? And we wanted to build Handy to solve that problem so that buyers and sellers of home services, which you know most people eventually become buyers of home services, whether they're renters or owners, could actually have a great experience. And with that, we stumbled into this problem of, how do we actually change how people engage in work? Because it's a huge economy. It's $400 billion spent on home services, and a lot of it is spent in this really clunky way. So we started Handy to solve that problem. Really interesting. And um, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, on-demand food delivery businesses, but could you talk a little bit about how Postmates differs from some of its competitors? Absolutely. So um, thanks for having us here. Our, our three co-founders, Bastian, Sam, and Sean, actually started the on-demand application Postmates with a simple idea that extended way beyond food. Um, it was actually that outside of New York City and much of America, you can't get items from a retail storefront delivered to your house 
maybe except for pizza. And so while in the last seven years, our company has grown to be able to service about 550 US cities, it's about covering 60% of all US households um, by networking or creating a network of about 350,000 Postmates or the couriers that make the deliveries. What this really has done for us is not just allow you to get your burrito delivered to your doorstep on a lazy Sunday. It's actually given local businesses and local merchants a chance to compete in 21st century e-commerce. And what I mean by that is all too often when we think about getting goods on demand, we think of a click of a button through an Amazon-like model. We all use it, it's hyper convenient, but when you build a distribution center or a warehouse on the outskirts of cities and then funnel goods into town, it shortchanges the ability or even the incentive for you and I to go to a local hardware store to get those light bulbs or go to our local pharmacy to get health and wellness products. What Postmates has done is actually indexed the product offerings of that city, treated the city as the warehouse, not built its own inventory warehouse, and then given each of those storefronts the tools they need to distribute their goods, and that extends beyond food. It creates from products like Starbucks to Apple to even uh, just items from your CVS. You can get that delivered, and in 2017 what we found is that of those retail sales, compared to those that did not use on-demand technologies, they actually saw a 3.7 or approximately 4x growth in sales over time. So now all of a sudden, local businesses are able to compete on a more level playing field in the era of e-commerce. And so over the last decade or so, since we saw Uber and Lyft come on the scene, you know, there's been an explosion of these so-called Uber for X companies, right? And, and it was really popular in, in Silicon Valley for many years. Um, but recently, that, that group has kind of contracted a little bit. We've seen some consolidation among these companies. Um, you know, how have your companies been able to remain independent in, in such a competitive and, and hot sector? I think the Uber for X model was applied to lots and lots and lots of things that didn't make a lot of sense. And I think that's you know, pretty typical of how venture evolves. So mm -hmm. something works in a particular category, a lot of money goes to it, and we say, okay, well, why don't we try that in like 15 or 200 other categories? And it turns out Uber for quarters didn't make sense. So kind of, you know, logically you would think Uber for quarters is probably not a thing. Um, I think where it has worked is where we've taken a step back and said, what's actually the pain point we're solving in this industry? So is it about instant booking? Is it about convenience? Is it about you know, matching supply and demand? And where that's occurred, industries have actually developed a strong point of view on what the problem is they're really solving. You've seen it work. So in Postmates case, or in Handy's case, we've said, hey, this is actually the problem we're solving. We're, pro we're solving the problem of matching supply and demand and we're not doing it in an instantaneous way. You largely don't need a handyman or a cleaner immediately. A lot of the bookings are actually much further out, but it still requires a much more streamlined booking flow. So whether it's background checks, payment processing, all the things that go into making sure that the experience actually works, I think in those cases, the business has made a lot of sense. And I think that there's often this assumption when we talk about the convenience economy that it's a one-to-one -one transaction between just two players. Um, I mentioned earlier the you know, 250,000, almost nearly 300,000 merchants that we have selling on our platform. Last year, they sold about $1.2 billion worth of goods. And so I think that instead of it just being seen as the customer getting an item delivered by the Postmate who's dropping it off at their house, it's really important for us that we recognize and champion that very material player 
here that has a significant impact on our communities, which is that third leg of the stool, which is that local merchant. And if we're talking about the on-demand economy, um, it, it extends beyond just you know one household name as applied to another, because it means that now a tech platform doesn't just have to be a tech platform that you or I use in terms of just firing up an app. It can actually be a tech platform that's a force for good in that community and helps those retailers compete with the global headwinds that the retail sector is facing overall. And I want to talk a little bit about just the general impact that we've seen um, from the gig economy on, on work in recent years. I mean, what are some things that have surprised you about how you know, these types of on-demand jobs ha have changed the nature of work in recent years? I think in the beginning, there was this perception that gig work was going to take over from other work. And there was this argument that was made that you know, through time, the volume of work being done by folks in the gig economy actually went up. We've seen the opposite. So we've seen, not quite the opposite, but we've seen it stay exactly flat. So the number of hours worked by the average handy pro has stayed pretty much exactly flat for the entire duration of handy, which is six and a half years. And I think that was an early, I don't know, was it a misconception or a, an early untruth that we were going to see this explosion in the number of people coming into the gig economy and then gradually moving to the gig economy for full-time work. We've seen folks you know, work between 10 to 15 hours a week as supplemental income or as work around their family lives as the typical engagement with Handy. And that, you know, I, I don't know, is that true for Uber or Lyft or others, but it's been exactly that way for Handy for a really long time. And I think that was one that you know, kind of surprised some people. It's a really good point. I mean, I, I kind of think of it, and there are two big reactions or surprises that I've seen. One is on the data point. Uh, if you take a look at McKinsey's evaluation of how many independent workers that are out there, they'll say about 25%. I think in 2016, Intuit said about 34% of tax filings through their platform happen to be of freelancers or independent work. And then, of course, the, the Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics issued data this year. Um, they're all sort of eating at the same notion of what, what, what's that population, but you have different data points, different measures, and I think the first thing that we need to do in terms of understanding who we're talking about is if Congress could authorize an annualized or regularized study um, of the DOL or BLS, wherever the right agency is, so we know that if there is not even an increasing share, but just a share of Americans that are choosing to work this way, then we need to be mindful of who we're talking about when we talk about broader things like benefits, and I'm sure that we'll get into. But I think the second surprise that we've seen at Postmates is just the fact that people are choosing to earn this way, whether it's big, small, or flat. Last year, Postmates on our platform made about $217 million, and they earned, on average, when they're actually on a job, $18.34 per hour. That's significantly higher than federal minimum wage. But I don't think we're just there to pat ourselves on the back. We actually, in September, uh, announced a new program called Instant Deposits, which means that someone can sign up to be a Postmate, make deliveries, and have their payout come that exact same day. And what's surprising there to us is that the Rockefeller Foundation, even Senator Harris, recently stated that most Americans can't afford a $400 medical expense that's unexpected, that's overnight. So since we launched Instant Deposits, about $50 million have been deposited into Postmates accounts, which means that now not only do you have an 
a lack of understanding about how many people are earning this way, but you also have a significant number of them that are doing so as an alternative to, say, predatory lending or payday lending. And so I think understanding that this could be a useful form of work to, as you said, supplement your income is a really important concept for us to grapple with in the economy. And that instant deposits point I just wanted to follow up on, um, is that something that other companies offer as well, or is that unique to Postmates? So um, I, I, in terms of our peers, I, I think that uh, we're at a leading edge of that. I know Uber, for example, is starting to integrate it. And you know, if more and more do it, I think that's a really great thing. It's not about a competitive advantage per se. It's more just that we know that the easy friction in the way that you get goods delivered should also apply to the easy friction in the way that we're able to access capital, particularly look at when we look at an era of wage stagnation and people really looking to stitch together more and more income. Yeah, we've, we've got a similar program. We don't call it instant deposits, though maybe we should. We call it cash out now, which deposits, um, which deposits. Cash right? out now. Cash right. out now, yeah. Interesting. Um, but it, it, it is interesting to think through what parts of the economy are being touched by gig work or freelance work. I think another perception was that it was all of this you know, relatively uh, sub $20 an hour work. So the average handy pro earns between $17 and $18 an hour. I think the other thing you're seeing is a lot more work happening in the gig economy at a much higher price point. So you're seeing a lot of legal work, design work happening on platforms like Upwork, which are also a huge part of this gig economy. And so, Vikram, you mentioned um, Congress and, and the need for more data about this economy. And, and I'm just curious, like, uh, from both your perspectives, how much interest have you seen from lawmakers on this issue? We're going to hear from two later today. But um, just want to hear a little bit from you about how receptive lawmakers have been to um, you know, talking about this gig economy. Yeah, we've actually seen a lot of interest and a lot of bipartisan interest. Uh, Senator Warner and Congressman Himes just recently introduced a bill or, or previewed a bill for the next session um, that would focus on portable retirement accounts. We know the incoming chairman of the House New Democrats um, Derek Kilmer is also poised to take a look at a lot of the white papers that the new Dem caucus issued this year on independent work, on different types of portability of benefits. Um, and we've even seen uh, members, uh, Senator Thune uh, and Congressman Rice have put forward bills on the Republican side about taking a look at how taxes are filed for independent workers and really trying to simplify that over time. Even the administration, Secretary Acosta um, has, has issued or asked for comment on rulemakings around association health plans and retirement plans, which could apply to independent workers. They've really been celebrating apprenticeship models. So I think what we're seeing at the federal level is a lot of thirst and desire to have a national conversation. And that is something that we're very willing to engage in, and our CEO, Bastian, has been encouraging us to do more of. But what we're also going to need to monitor is what's happening at the state level. Um, just given the pace of certain state assemblies, you know, everybody from Governor Cuomo in New York to Governor Inslee in Washington to the Governor-elect Newsom in California, they're all really eager to try and address this topic of future of work. And that's not just how you balance worker protections and worker voice with worker flexibility. It's also how do you train in an era of automation. And so I think what we need to do next year as a tech company is both work with those lawmakers, but also work with all stakeholders at the regional level that may have equities in this space. So we're really trying to gin up experimental solutions and then hopefully from those lessons learned locally, export that up federally. And Handy is a New York company, and, and you mentioned Governor Cuomo. I mean, um, could you talk a little bit about how you're navigating um, th this at the state and local level? So I think Vikram's right. There's been a lot of interest in 
trying to get to a solution here really, really quickly. And I think that was probably four or five years ago that that interest started. To your point, Uber only started, whatever, nine-ish years ago. It was a little too early. So I think we're only eight or nine years in at this point to a very evolving part of the economy. To try and come up with the solution immediately, I think it didn't make a lot of sense. I think the interest needs to be in figuring out exactly what experiments, what trials, what tests we want to run so that we can get to the right answer as quickly as possible. But I think what we're, what we're hopeful is that we're going to see more regulatory sandboxes. Obviously, we've you know, put forward legislation in a number of places. Um, we've been very fortunate to have engagement from folks like Senator Warner. And I think at a state level, we've seen you know, bills go out in New York. Um, and I think what we're hopeful is that we're going to see both labor companies and regulators and legislators really get involved in defining what the tests are that we want to run, what the experiments are that we run, want to run, so that we can figure out the right answer. I don't think anyone can look forward 10 years the same way that 10 years ago no one could look forward to now and say, oh my goodness, we're going to have millions of people working in this part of the economy earning this much per hour. I think we would have gotten it all wrong. But I think now we can look forward and say, okay, based on everything we've learned from the millions of people who've earned money in this part of the economy, what are our hypotheses and what are the things that we think we should go and test and how do we create frameworks for labor companies to work together and test those things in as safe a way as possible? Yeah, that, that's a really good point if I could just react to that. I mean, you're, the concept of testing what's right really need to be, needs to be the name of the game here. At, at Postmates, we've been able to work very closely with a number of worker voice organizations and labor unions over the last year to get to this notion. But really what's at stake is this dichotomy um, between this notion of independent work and full-time work. And I think in America, we need to not only update our laws to reflect the modern way people are working, but we also need to take a look at how do we minimize the delta in compensation between that full-time work and that independent work. And there are ways to do that by stacking additional benefits, exploring different experiments in different states, working with labor to do that. Um, but at the same time, understanding that worker flexibility is something that millions of Americans are choosing to get into. So the onus is on us to establish those partnerships with, with labor. But I think that we also have to understand one distinct thing. There is a massive difference between the dignity of work and the dignity of a job. A J-O-B to us may have reflected the way we've worked since the New Deal or since we've been on the factory floor in, in, in manufacturing firms and worked in one career in one company our way up for quite some time. But to reflect a pace in which you're putting together different incomes, having different types of productivity, and then still being able to provide for your kids, for your family, and leave them a little better off, there's still dignity to that. And I think that's what's at the heart of that experimentation. And just following up on that, we actually have a question from Twitter. And I would just remind everyone in our audience that you can tweet any questions you might have for our panel at hashtag postlive. Um, and um, the question is, can you discuss how ind independent contractors' status can hinder workers' right to organize? Do you want to take that one? Sure, thanks. <laughs> Look, I think there's no perfect model for organizing. I think we've seen labor activity decline over the last 30, 40 years. I think there is a huge opportunity to use technology to actually empower workers. I think more than anything else, we don't want to go out and just build a platform that serves customers that won't work for us. What we want to do is build a platform that serves our customers and serves our pros. And in order to do that, 
of course we need to figure out what exactly our pros want. So it's one thing for us to survey our pros, carry out focus groups, et cetera. It would be a far easier thing or a far more fruitful thing for us to actually have a way to engage with you know, an organized group on behalf of our pros. And I think that's something that you know, we've talked about. It's something that we proposed legislation on in New York. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Um, but I think there is a strong interest from lots of parties, not just Handy, from other companies to say, okay, how can we work with labor? We've leaned in to work with labor multiple times before. I'm hopeful that we'll figure that out again. Um, and I think that there is a huge opportunity to use technology not just to help workers in the gig economy organize, but also to help workers in general organize. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really, really important question. And there is no doubt that the labor unions in this country have helped build the middle class of this country, from everything from wage protections to uh, harassment protections to even just the ability to have a five-day work week, full stop. That being said, as we try and figure out how to make sure that we capture worker voice in any conversation, particularly because under current labor law, the ability to organize is a little bit more difficult for 1099s, what we need to do is make sure as a tech platform, we prioritize that voice. So just two months ago, Postmates launched something called the Federal, uh, sorry, the Fleet Advisory Board. We refer to our Postmates as our fleet. And we actually have representatives um, from different markets that are able to opine not just on the product and try and seek out improvements in the products, but also some of our policy conversations that we're having here in DC and at the local point at the local government. And the, the final point that I would say to the question is that part of what organizing is aiming to do is try and create those worker protections. So what we've been trying to do, and I know Handy's been experimenting with this in a huge way, is take a look at different models and see within the confines of our law right now, how do we stack additional benefits on top to really get to the heart of what that questioner is asking? So we've actually rolled out a free health savings account on the heels of op the open enrollment period that's happening or that just concluded uh, this weekend. Over the last two years, we actually helped sign up over 2,400 Postmates for health care under Obamacare that previously didn't have health insurance. We're actually trying to route them to more tax resources so they can simplify their tax matters. And actually, we've been matriculating classes of Postmates into career pathway organizations using Department of Labor-funded grants through an organization called JVS so we can work on upskilling. The point is, within the way the current laws are structured, we would like to do more by way of connecting our Postmates to benefits, but we really need to contemplate a world where we're decoupling the delivery of all those benefits and the prioritization of that voice from just full-time employment models. At the end of the day, though, the questioner is right. Prioritizing worker voice must be at the heart of that experimentation, but what we're really looking to lawmakers is for the ability to experiment. And can you talk about how Handy's offerings to employees compare to some of those that Vikram just listed at Postmates? So I think we've leaned in on saying, how do we give people access to all the things we can without crossing that line into employment? So we've encouraged our folks, similar to Vikram, uh, to sign up for affordable care. We've encouraged folks to sign up for flexible benefits, we've or flexible savings accounts. We've encouraged folks to do lots of things, but we've stepped short of that line that you would need to cross if we were to, to truly put Handy at risk. And I think it's really important that we do create these frameworks for more and more experimentation so we can offer more faster. We know that the motivation for work has become clearer and clearer 
in this gig economy world where people are actively trading off economics, their purpose for work or the meaning in their work and flexibility. And flexibility is this thing that just keeps coming up again and again in why people are choosing to work on Handy. And it's the number one reason that comes up that you know, people want more and more flexibility. They want the ability to set their own hours. They want the ability to call off and cancel late. They want the ability to say, hey, something has come up and I need to adjust my schedule. And we've prioritized that above everything else. So I think it's really important we preserve the flexibility that the independent contractor status gives our folks and also the ability to negotiate some of their wages. So our pros negotiate in some cases the price that they actually get with the homeowner. So that's something again that falls out of the realm of an employee engagement. So I think it's really important we preserve that and yet create a structure so that we can test more and more things faster. And uh, sorry that I misspoke before and said employees instead of contractors. Um, I want to be careful about that distinction here, obviously. And so um, with um, you know that point on um, contractors and kind of walking that line within the existing law, I mean, how much pressure are you under to offer these new forms of benefits um, at a time when the labor market is really tight and recruiting might be more competitive? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually don't know if I would characterize it as pressure. Um, the, the awesome thing about Postmates is I joined about a year and a half ago um, at the direction of our CEO, Bastion, to try and figure out how do we take stock of our responsibility of that fleet of 350,000 Postmates. We know many of them are using it to earn, but we also know about 80% of them are on the app, to, to your earlier point, only about three to five hours per week, truly supplemental. And we know that 40% um, of them are looking for other forms of work. So you think about the marketer who has a client for three to six months and only then hops on the Postmates platform until he or she gets that next client. So to us, we sort of see it as how do we actually stack on additional um, you know, resources, tools that can help them fulfill their broader scope and, and, and reach in life as opposed to just seeing this in terms of a competitive advantage. But, but I will say, and I will admit that, you know, at this point in time where you have different workers going after, uh, you know, seeking opportunities in different places, what it really means is that we're at a time in America where there is wage stagnation, there is consolidation of, of, of wealth among a few, there are uh, you know, skyrocketing healthcare costs and obviously politicization of that healthcare doesn't help. So what we really need to do is take stock of, as a private sector company, how can we do right by that workforce and continue to do so, as you said, within the confines of the law. And that I think is about investing in the fleet of our Postmates as opposed to any one competitive edge that we're trying to eke out of it. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, when you're doing business in people's homes, there's an extra quality assurance that has to come along with that. And um, I read about the fees that Handy had introduced um, in, a, in an article on Quartz. And so could you talk to us a little bit about those fees and, and how you use that to ensure that workers are showing up and, and doing high quality work on their jobs? If you think about the typical transaction on Handy, you're right, it's in somebody's home. So it's really important that we put the customer experience at the top of the list. So how do we make an experience for the customer where they've decided to stay home to let a professional in or take time off work or set aside a Saturday or whatever it may be. They've given up something to say, hey, I'm going to be home at a certain time to let somebody in and ask them to you know, mount a TV on a wall or fix a plumbing problem. And it's really important that the customer that's going to that, sorry, the pro that's going to that actually shows up on time. Similarly, what we've got is a situation where a pro has said, hey, 
I'm going to block a certain amount of time to go to this customer's home, it's really important that that customer shows up and actually lets me in. So on both sides of our platform, we have incentives and disincentives to make sure that people actually do what they say they're going to do. So the same way that you know, if a customer cancels at the last minute and says, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be there on this, pro, on this day to let this pro in you know, 30 minutes before a booking, we're going to charge that customer and we're going to compensate the pro. Similarly, there's a fee if the pro at the last minute says, hey, I'm not going to show up to do that job. And the customer is obviously disappointed. So we've got incentives and disincentives. And you know, the opposite to that is, hey, when you go back to the same customer again and again, there's the opposite of that, which is you get extra bonus uh, incentive for, uh, for making the customer really happy. So it's an incredibly complicated marketplace that has a lot going on across logistics, across customer behavior, across pro behavior, across trust and safety. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we need to make sure that we've got the right incentives in place at all times to make the marketplace actually work. And the other incentive that we see companies using a lot is, is surge pricing to drive you know, contractors and, and high demand times. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how Postmates approaches this issue? I mean, have you also introduced fees or anything of that nature for, for your fleet? Well, uh, well, first of all, just in terms of the customer side of the equation, we actually have a tool called uh, Postmates Unlimited, which is analogous to an Amazon Prime subscription model, uh, which allows you to get unlimited deliveries that are above you know, $15 or more uh, for just $7.99 a month. And when we see that, we see that uh, devoid of any surging on, on the customer end. On the fleet end, to actually encourage Postmates um, to go out there, um, we do use dynamic pricing. And I think that that is a really important under uh, point to make because the way our economics work are actually because of a very demand elastic model, which means that more merchants that we put on the platform, whether it's food or whether it's a pharmacy or whether it's a hardware store, the more customer demand we get and therefore the more fleet we need to fulfill that. So that has a bit of a flywheel model that creates that pull and tug in, in real time. Um, but that flywheel economics actually works because we're able to incentivize different um, deals, both on the customer side and the fleet side. You can imagine on a Super Bowl Sunday, there's a high demand to get food delivered through an app like ours. Uh, but on a Tuesday morning, we're maybe Maybe people are you know, more at their offices and not necessarily getting items delivered, then there might be another way to incentivize people to ensure that we create that coverage. So that demand elastic pricing allows us to really focus on how to meet customer need, but that actually goes back to the core point of why that flexibility is so vital. Because your or my ability to get a ride from DCA at 3 a.m. if we fly in late is because of that lift ride being able to be there because we're not setting those shifts or schedules well in advance but the worker elects to choose in that approach to be on the app at that hour. And I think to your point earlier, that flexibility is core to our model, and that's how we price around it as well. And we're almost out of time, but I want to make sure we can talk about this other major trend in the future of work, which is automation. And so how do you think automation is going to impact the future of the gig economy? Do you want to maybe take that first since Postmates just introduced their autonomous delivery robot? Yeah, yeah. Um, last week, we uh, introduced a, a new member of our fleet. Um, we call it Serve. Uh, it's an um, autonomous delivery device that uh, travels on, on sidewalks and was actually really designed to have socially aware navigation. So we're testing in senior citizen communities to make sure that it can yield and navigate um, those that might have disabilities or mobility issues. Um, we're actually working with cities to make sure that we develop a framework that respects the public right of way so we're not 
not you know, running roughshod over pedestrians. Um, but really what this enables to do for us is um, pursue a, a way in which we're augmenting the fleet, not supplanting it in any way. Um, and we think that's a really interesting way in order to uh, fulfill deliveries that might be in a particularly short distance. If we wanted something delivered from across the street, a Postmate could bring it to us, but financially that payout wouldn't be useful to them. So being able to close that truly less than a mile gap through automation is a useful way to do that. That being said, I think we have two responsibilities. One is to make sure that we're doing so in a really responsible way. The prospect of automation of robotics is really only as scary as we, as the human creators, choose to wield it. And so because we're trying to make sure that it has that social aware navigation and we're designing it from the wheels up with that in mind, that's something that our, our head of R&D, Ali Kashani, and our CEO are very committed to. And the second thing happens to be around the workforce training program. And so for us, being able to create this new class of jobs has actually allowed us to work with organizations like swords to plowshares to recruit our, uh, Air Force veterans and Navy veterans who are particularly well attuned at dealing and operating robotics. So um, I think that if you wield that tool responsibly and try and upskill and create a curriculum around how to actually build that, then we can walk into the embracement of an automation without it necessarily jettisoning the notion of that dignity of work. And I want to make sure you get a chance to weigh in too. I mean, how do you think automation is changing on-demand work in the home? I think work in the home is a very fortunate category in that it's probably at the very tail end of automation. I think it's one of the categories along with elder care uh, where it truly is going to be very, very hard to automate what actually happens when you're repairing something in your home, when you're carrying out work in such a very, very disparate environment where the nuances of how to clean something, of how to repair something, of how to mount something, of how to actually structure somebody's home is very, very, very specific. Um, and I think it's an area where we're going to see more and more growth in manual work. And I think there's augmentation that's going to happen. So I, I think there's some work or some technology that's going to make it easier and easier to upskill people to, tr to repair more and more complicated things. But I don't see it as a replacement in any size, shape, or form for uh, work that's being done in the home over the next decade. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for our panel today. I want to thank our guests so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.